I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following is the second installment in a two-part epilogue to our series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Okay, so this is part two in a, a kind of two-part epilogue to our series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. We realized along the way that there was uh, quite a bit of content that got left on the cutting room floor. There's there's more than a few things that you can't possibly address in the window of a 45-minute sermon. Um, and so we asked folks at, at Van City to text in questions that they had that come up along the way. If, you know, if ever there was something that came up in a teaching or in the practices and made them say, wait a minute, what about, then we asked them to text those questions in. Got a fair amount of questions along the way. And we've divided them into uh, a two-parter epilogue here. The first one is already out on the podcast. You can go back and listen to it. It has uh, myself, Cameron, and Bethany Allen answering a handful of questions. And then today, Cameron and I are back. But this time, we brought along our friend and professor, Dr. Gary Brashears. That's me. Yeah, that's you. Yeah. From Western Seminary. Head of the theology department down at Western Seminary, right? Yeah, yeah. That and two ninety five will get me a coffee at the shop next door. <laughs> 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 it's already great. It's already <laughs> worth having you on. Oh, that's good. So Gary's been a um, a teacher of ours, but uh, more than that, kind of a, a mentor to the Van City story. Even s- since before we launched, yeah. one of the first people I sat down with and said, "Hey, how about planting a church? Is this a good idea or a bad idea?" Was Gary, and I half expected him to say. Well, with you, bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) But what he really said was, well, I mean, maybe you could pull it off. We'll see. No, he was was great. So it's nice to finally have you directly involved. Now we're we're sullying the good name of Dr. Gary Bashir. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) By having you on the podcast. Yeah. But Gary, you actually teach um, a class proper on spiritual warfare over at Western, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, I started teaching that as a class, oh, probably 30 years ago, and I've taught that class literally all over the world. It's the most requested class that I do. So I've done it in Amsterdam, Poland, Mexico, Uganda, Philippines, Taiwan, China. I mean, uh, it's because I've discovered kind of demons live everywhere, and deception is a reality in every culture. Wow. So more than a few places is yeah. what you're saying, are interested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what you're saying is this class isn't just like a theoretical, like kind of up in the clouds sort of thing. It's it's made to be practical and, and used practically, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I could do a biblical theology of powers and it would, you know, it'd be an interesting academic exercise. Those books certainly exist. But no, I'm interested in what happens when somebody has a, an accusing voice in their head that's telling them that they'd be happier dead. Yeah. And sometimes that voice is a demonic voice. What happens when we're believing the kinds of lies you guys are talking about in the sermons and that deception that says, you know, God isn't all that good. I mean, he's, he's, he's kind of in his own thing. Like maybe you're just a pawn in his game, and it sounds very believable, that kind of deception going on. So it, it, that's the sort of stuff I deal with. That's a g- uh, I, if I may, I'd love to just ask you something right off the bat that I don't think it. is in there. I'm surprised you'd do that, John. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're getting at a really interesting point that's been on my mind lately and something that came up at least at, in the abstract sense several times along the way. 
which is the role of influence and deception that the uh, enemy, that Satan and demons and uh, the powers, whatever you want to call them, have in our lives. And uh, yesterday I was reading, you know, Matthew 13 and the, the parable of the seeds and the first incident of failed um, seeds are the, the birds come and snatch them up. And then later when Jesus is having to do like a director's commentary on the parable <laughs> for the disciples, uh, he says, you know, that the, the enemy, the evil one comes yeah. and snatches the word that was that was planted. And uh, in, in as I'm reading and studying all these commentaries, they're all wrestling with this idea of, like, how, how can he do that? <laughs> and how does he do that? And they're all wrestling with, like, the role of, you know, human responsibility. It's not as if the devil can, like, bulldoze and coerce you and overpower your will completely. Right. But he certainly seems to have some kind of direct influential role in the hearts and minds of, people do you have like a paradigm for how to like parse those things out or how it works or how it is that you know like we are ultimately responsible but yet can be led astray you know by the devil Mm -hmm. yeah i i just think of a high school kid uh who's say grown up in a church home uh who and that's my own story uh who is in high school and he's trying to figure out how to be popular in the high school thing looks around and says, you know, who's, th- who's the kid that I want to be with because he's the influencer and he's the one who talks to me and says, well, kid, you don't, I mean, you, tsh, that Bible is like an embarrassment. Uh, and there it is. I throw my Bible away because I want to have popularity in the high school campus and the guy that I is the gatekeeper for that particular thing m- mocks me for being identified as a Christian. So I throw away Christianity. That's exactly the sort of thing that happened in the weeds. The only difference is the demonic personality. It is a person, uh, a spiritual person, so it's not doesn't have physical extension, but it has spiritual extension. And those voices are very real, and the influence they can have in our minds and spirits are as real as a human being talking to us, though we don't hear it audibly through our ears. We hear it spiritually through our minds. Right, so when you are talking to people who are describing... Um, that kind of influence, and you—they don't know it yet—but you, your radar goes off, and you're like, "Oh, that's that's what I would describe as demonic influence." Yeah. <coughs> well, the accusing voice is—I mean, it comes in all kinds of different things. Uh, for a lot of women, as I'm talking to them, there's a voice in their head that says, "You are a fat pig." You know what in the world? You know, uh, and that voice can be self-talk. We can really do damage to ourselves, of course. It can be an internalized, important person in your life, a mom or an older sister or a boyfriend or somebody that's just internalized and lives in your head. Or it could be a demonic voice, uh, an a evil person, uh, and that voice could come from that source. So the voice could have lots of different directions, but in any case, it's the world of flesh and the devil speaking in your mind. Right. And that was one of the, the very first questions, actually, is that someone wanted to know um, if, uh, if the difference between our flesh and the devil uh, or, you know, the kingdom of darkness, however you want to describe all the, the satanic powers mm-hmm. at work in the world, if, um, if there's a even uh, a worthwhile, if it's even a worthwhile endeavor to, to separate those two and try to learn, like, 
oh, this is my flesh, this is my particular bent, this is the way that I'm broken, and oh man, this seems like demonic oppression and outside influence mm-hmm. reaching in to either energize my flesh or to, you know, like to corrupt me in a way that's kind of unique to my personality. Do you think that it's even important to learn the difference between those two? Or Yeah, I actually do. Uh, the difference is a demon is a personal being. It's wily, it's, it's cunning, it, it, there, and there's a personal reaction, and it's not me. Uh, the voice of the flesh is just my own stuff going, and it's, it's me, and in a sense it's not me, but it's not a different personality. It's a, it's a part of me. So I can tell a demonic being to get away in the name of Jesus, and I have that authority. I can't do that to my flesh because it really is a part of me, though there's a lot of overlap in how I deal with the content of what they're saying. The source really is quite different. It's just a personal thing. Just like if I'm hanging around the high school campus and some guy is telling me, do this, I, I need to get away from him. I can't get away from my own internal belief that, you know, I'm not smart enough or I'm right. too whatever. Right. So, and when you, like, y- you know, one of the things that it's, uh, you've been massively helpful for in the pragmatic piece, spiritual warfare, um, is that I, I found myself all throughout this, this series, uh, the Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil, that we're constantly building out these theological and biblical paradigms for, well, this is what the devil is, this is who the devil is, these are what demons are, this is how it works, mm-hmm. this is the problem of evil, this is the Old Testament, you know, trying to build out a bigger and bigger paradigm so that you can finally say, now let's talk about these things as if they're a given. <laughs> because uh, if you come right out of the gate with you know a modern audience and say, so there's this guy called the devil, there, uh, regardless of their theological background, at this point, something in people makes them go, yeah, but this is starting to sound super kooky. Yep, um, yep. So Unless I'm in Africa. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, then exactly. I get exactly the opposite thing. And why, why is that? One of the questions oh, we wor- got. Our worldview here is a naturalist worldview. Things are explained by random application and probably operating natural law. And that's the naturalistic scientism. And that's our base world. It's our nar- cultural narrative for much of our culture is that's what causes things is empirically verifiable scientific causalities, physics and chemistry and such. So the idea that there would be a supernatural element, uh, a spiritual like component to the the way that things work in the world is just by the it seems absurd to us yeah it's it's an eye roll it's a laugh line oh yeah the devil made me do it you know and everybody laughs because you know that's dumb right except that it could be real (laughs) but then elsewhere in the world even even developed parts of the world it seems like there's less of a wall up between the the physical and spiritual oh it's it's the opposite when i'm in africa uh the the normal explanation for most everything is it's a demon. It's a curse. So if your kid gets sick, here we think, oh, he's probably got the flu or food poisoning. Your kid gets sick in rural Africa, oh, it, there's a curse put on him. Uh, there's a demon attacking him. The base explanation is completely different. So that it's almost like a... Uh, and. Um, a unique a problem that's different on the other end of the spectrum in the sense that one of the things we talked about in the the series was like the you know uh, evangelical culture of the satanic panic in the yep. 70s and 80s when it was like any anything in culture that seemed even remotely 
not overtly Christian was probably the devil, satanic, you know, rock and roll's evil, TV's evil, Halloween. I'm glad to hear you say that, John. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear you say that. And I came to terms with all those things. Yeah, and you joined the devil and did rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds, it's almost like you're describing, you know, there's, there's what I know what I was trying to communicate. It's easy for us to laugh at that. It's easy for us to, you know, like I even put up a video of a severely dated Chuck Smith uh, on a green screen talking about how evil, you know, Saturday morning cartoons are uh, in what must have been, you know, 82 or something like that. And it's easy to go, oh, my gosh, they're so silly. Let's laugh. Um, but there is, on the other hand, at least a respect for the fact that that there is a very real dimension to reality that's often overlooked by modern eyes and ears and senses that there are demons there are there is a creature called the devil and um and so the finding that balance between like yes there is a reality to the spiritual realm it's very important it's very crucial and that doesn't necessarily mean that every time you have a cold it was you were afflicted by the devil himself and there's possibly some rock and roll that isn't totally <laughs> satanic. Yeah. But I haven't found it yet. <laughs> and yeah, what? No, good that's really true. Is that fundamental narrative does a lot of things. And the piece that I'm trying to do biblically is recognize: yes, the flesh is real. My my sociological background is a major factor in who I am. And then there's also Satan and demons, and angels uh, that are part of our world. And they're real parts of our world, but they're they're laugh lines in the mainstream North American culture. Yeah, which is why well, we I should say United States culture. Yeah, we got a question um, from someone who wanted to know why it is that there's so few cases of demonic oppression, and by that I think what they meant in the context of this question was like, you know, the more sensationalized, uh, what we would maybe call like manifestations of possession or oppression. The kind of things that are not necessarily untrue, but that have been hyped up by, you know, I don't know, the mm-hmm. uh, publication of The Exorcist in the early 70s. Yep. And um, and they're like, how come that seems like it doesn't happen in America in the modern world, but we s- continue to hear about it happening elsewhere in the world? And I wondered if it's not necessarily the case that it happens um or it doesn't happen at all, but it certainly is the case, but that we have other methods of explaining those things. Yep. That's a part of it. The other thing is Satan works the way that's most effective in the culture. Mm-hmm. In our culture, to start flopping on the floor is not a way to get good things happening. Uh, if you're in Africa and you start doing some of those things, that's a way to become effective because the shamans are a major force in African culture. Shamans are not a major force in mainstream American culture. So Satan just works in a different way. His job is to be effective, not to follow a certain methodology. Oh, wow, that's really good. Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of clever sense. Yeah, so he can come out through a, uh, a cynical, sarcastic tone in the United States, and it's very effective uh, in, in, well, I've got a friend in Africa. He's Ugandan, and I was talking, I was when I was in Uganda three or four years ago, and he was talking about a shaman in his in the village next to his where he grew up and without even th- I mean he wasn't even thinking he just said yeah this guy w- he could call down fire from heaven and I said he could do what <laughs> and I mean for for him uh, oh of course he could do that you know and I'm thinking well okay I've heard about Elijah 
But he, for him, it was just a simple fact, yeah, this was a powerful shaman. He could call down fire from heaven. He could make a major lightning stroke happen. And my American side said, uh, like, really? And, but him, well, of course he could do that. Those are two different worldviews. Yeah. And, and I believe in the demonic, but for him to say, yeah, he could go on fire from heaven, I was immediately, nah, you can't do that. <laughs> but he had, he had seen it, you know, and this is, Julius is a great guy. He's got a doctorate and he's a leading evangelical in Central, in Eastern Africa. Yeah, he could go on fire from heaven. It's just a simple fact. So why do you think it is that despite the fact that cases of, you know, um, uh, shall we say, uh, Hollywood demonization are certainly less, or less prevalent um, in the conversational sense. We don't just often hear about, yeah, we were at another gathering and somebody's head was spinning around like it all, like always when we start singing worship songs. Um, but it does seem to be the case that they're occasional and in certain contexts mm -hmm. that ev I'll, I'll even hear like, a, you know, I'll be talking to a friend who was like, it was the weirdest thing. We had this person, we were praying for them. And suddenly yeah. there were these snarling voice or like a different language yeah. or like, you know, all this torrent of obscenity that this person would have <laughs> never said. And it w we were horrified, you know, um, why is it that, uh, that that do you think it's like a contextual thing if that's effective in the context uh, my baseline for that is demons hate to be looked at in the name of jesus mm -hmm. and they will react and so what you're talking about and i've seen the same thing uh is that when you get a demon and you're looking at it in the name of jesus it's like mark chapter one they object what are you doing here jesus it's not your time yet like get out of here uh, and it happens I, I mean i've seen it happen in in stuff i've done yeah and in those, so that was one of the things in the series that was like, uh, uh, I, fe I felt like I kept mentioning it as an aside because it's it really is an aside for mm -hmm. our context. We're dealing more with like the way the enemy deceives with lies, the way, yes. the, but um, it it does. You know, I was reading these stories from the New Testament and saying, and this kind of thing is like an actual demonization. This kind of thing does happen. But and then let's talk about the the more um, the context more represented in our lives. Um, yep. What do you I when you have people who come to you as someone with some level of experience and expertise and say like I'm having my my experience is not necessarily the like oh I hear this voice saying that you're lousy you're a piece of trash that they're they're having the bump in the night experience so they're having the like you know, maybe even proportionate to this, this thing is going on in my spiritual life. And, you know, like right beside it is this weird experiential thing that's going on where I'm, I'm, you know, like it's this creepy, spooky stuff. Yeah. And I don't know what am I supposed to do? Like, this is mm -hmm. so outside yeah. of my, the kind of story I hear frequently is, uh, I woke up at two o'clock in the morning and there was this dark black evil thing looking at me in my bedroom. That's not what you want. That is not what you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it's not your roommate. You know, it really is a demonic presence. And that happens. Uh, I had a pastor, good pastor friend of mine, uh, a few years ago, that he and his wife were just having awful time in their house. They weren't communicating well. Weird stuff was happening. Their kids were having stuff. And he said, do you think it could be demonic? And I said, well, it could be. So he went over to his house and started praying through the rooms of the house and each one dedicating it to what 
and so his wife and these two kids, him and his wife and two kids. And we went room by room dedicating these things and speaking, speaking rebuke to anything that would be against that. Uh, kids were hungry, so I stopped and got them some food, and we're headed downstairs. And his wife said, uh, I'll just step here with the kids. And my ding, my thing, like, okay, what's going on here? And in about a minute, she was sobbing. I'm afraid to go down there. And uh, so I, I figured out pretty quickly what was happening. And sure enough, that's where the demonic thing was living, was in their basement. And the basement is a place where they wash clothes and the kids play on rainy days and that kind of stuff. So we stopped and prayed, helped her realize, helped them realize uh, that we're in the kingdom of light and the demons have no authority over us and we can come in the name of Jesus, looked a little bit of scripture and just reinforced her identity. I'm a daughter of the king. And then we went downstairs and did that. And I had her take lead in that when we did the prayer because she knew exactly where the demon was in her own spirit. And I so I had her be the one to lead out and tell the demon to get out in Jesus' name and then reinforce that. That was the end of their problems. And now that's a bizarre story to yeah, be sure. Yeah. But I was there. I yeah. can I won't, but I could tell you the name of the pastor. So there and there is a, a biblical precedence for like demons being spatially located. Yeah. yeah. The high places in the old testament. They keep rebuilding the high places because that's where the demons live. Or Jesus says uh the demons in Mark chapter 5 don't want to be cast out of this area. Right. Yes. You know, that's that's something that I've noticed as like a pop culture enthusiast that uh, when I read these, you know, if you read a novel like The Exorcist, which is based in part on, you know, uh, news clippings of various stories, or if you read um, the Amityville horror, yeah. the, the, the Defoe murders and those kinds of things, there's a certain, you know, cynicism you can bring to it and say, oh, I'm sure this has been exaggerated, this has been, this is hyperbole, or this has been inserted for the sake of making a novel out of the thing. Mm -hmm. But there are certain pieces that I'll come across in these pop culture stories and be like, that actually seems pretty theologically astute. That yes. That the, even yes. the minutia of yeah. it that someone else would be like, oh, it was in the basement, and they look right over that, and I think... There seems to be some biblical precedence yeah. that there for like the spatial location of yeah. the demons. The I I hear the stories of the mass shootings, and if you read the news accounts, it's common that the guy who's got the gun, uh, that there's a voice telling him to go shoot people. Uh, it's 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 creepy, really, to think about it. Uh, but I I think at least in some cases it is demonic that they're yeah. doing it. Gary, uh, this is all super good content. How do you think somebody who's coming from more of a naturalistic point of view, who's hearing all this and is like, okay, I, I understand this, but how do I get to this place where this is more normalized? You know, how do I not cross a line where I'm sliding down and every cold is, you know, a, a demon? How what what are steps that people can take to like start to kind of adjust their worldview from? more of a naturalistic worldview to more that's uh, open to the spiritual reality of, of darkness and evil and Satan. Yeah, you said it really well earlier when you said that someone said, do you think this could be a demon? And you said, could be. Yeah. Yeah, that's my standard phrase. It could <laughs> be. There's lots of other possibilities. Multimodal stuff, sociological, psychological, uh, intellectual, but part of it could be a spiritual demonic. I mean, frankly, the answer, Cameron, is like, read the Bible. <laughs> I don't want to be simplistic because yeah, that's not. Cameron. I can't yeah. believe. Yeah. You Have you ever would tried that, that, Cameron? <laughs> <laughs> Read 
read it for one. Read the Bible. Yeah. Uh, the just the simple fact the Bible presents that worldview. And if I can tell a tale on my friend uh, Tim Mackey, uh, Tim, he's very straight up. You know, he just does not believe this stuff exists. Mm. And here in the oh, in the past year or so, he said, you know, the Bible treats this stuff like it's real. Now, he, he's talked vaguely in his podcast about an experience that happened with him where he ran face-long into a demon and just freaked him out. Uh, but his basic thing, and he switched over here recently, is I need to adopt the worldview of the Bible. So the Bible projects are doing the whole spiritual being stuff right now. And Tim has said, I need to adopt that and make it a part of my thinking pattern. Experientially, he's still pretty skeptical about this stuff. Sure. But he did have that one experience. I happened to have, have a breakfast schedule with him the very next day, and he was creeped out by running into what was unmistakably a demonic presence in a friend of his. So uh, on that note, how do you, th- um, what to you feels like or seems like in your experience, conversations, other people's stories, is an unmistakable demonic presence as opposed to, well, could be. You know what I mean? The the ones that, for me, are just uh, as clear as it can be, uh, a story I've told often a uh, long time, was a student and a pastor back in the day, uh, and he was in uh, really severe addictive behaviors. Now, the fact that he's a seminary student and a pastor and severe addictive behaviors seems like a contradiction, but it's not that uncommon. I had him going to a psychologist friend of mine, very, very fine Christian psychologist, and we were working partner. I had to relate some information. I was pushing on the spiritual side. The psychologist was pushing on the emotional uh, family side, uh, and my psychologist friend was getting nowhere. I was getting nowhere, and his addictive stuff was going on, bizarre sexual stuff and other kind of uh, anger and drugs and one thing or another. And he was in my office one day, and I was pushing on some spiritual identity stuff, and I was pushing hard. And suddenly, I mean, it was just in like three seconds, his entire composure changed. And with a completely different voice, I heard, he's ours. You can't have him. And 30 seconds later, this tough pastor guy was sitting in the chair in my office weeping. What was that? Well, it was a demon. Uh, that, it's hard to explain that in anything other than that. Now, it could have been a, some sort of multiple, multiple personality, but it, he wasn't. He's not multiple. Uh, it was a demonic presence. Uh, and I, four or five days later, with an open-ended time frame, we dealt with it, and the demon's gone. And the psychologist friend, who's an expert in addictive stuff, they started making amazing changes. He ended up married. He's got four kids now and in pastoral ministry, and we talk about it frequently. That was bizarre, and it was a demonic presence. So that was one that was as unmistakable as anything can be. Uh, others, it's just that oppressive presence or that accusing voice that when the person looks at it, I ask them, is that you or is that something else? And they look at it with the power of Jesus, and they look at that voice or that presence, and they say, you know, that, that, that just, that's not me. And I think people with the power of the Holy Spirit can figure that out. 
And so let's say that you have someone who's less um, surrounded by resources, somebody who doesn't have access to uh, Dr. Brashears and a psychologist friend and a network of, you know, pastoral assistants for whatever reason. And uh, and they are like, man, I, I, I feel like there's something, you know, going weird going on with my family or in my house or in my own, like, psyche. What do you have, like, suggestions for mm-hmm. other than, you know, Cameron's ha- needs to read the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> Well, move to Portland, enroll at Western Seminary. Come to <laughs> oh, there it is. Wow, there it is. Pay a bazillion dollars for seminary <laughs> tuition. It'll, it'll be good. Uh, now, I, I, a good thing to do there is find a wise and spirit-led friend and sit down, read some key scriptures about our identity in Christ, Colossians 1, 12 through 14, Ephesians 5, 8, <clears throat> something like that. Just to remind me, I'm a child of the king. And then prayerfully... Ask the Holy Spirit to show, help me look inside myself and see what's going on there. And I think it's really good to do that with a spirit-led friend and just pray together, Lord, show us what we need to see. Demons do not like to be looked at in the name of Jesus. They will fuzz. Uh, That's not a fail-safe thing, but that really helps. If you're doing it with a wise friend who you can trust enough, you don't have to edit. You can just say whatever comes up. I think that's a pretty good way to do stuff. And then realize, following the pattern of Jesus, that scripture spoken out loud has tremendous power, and I have the authority to tell the demon to get away in Jesus' name and always come back to Jesus' things. Don't stay on, oh, my gosh, where'd that demon go kind of stuff. Right. So uh, you're saying do all that, and then it'll be all better, and you'll never have to deal with anything like that again. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Just like Jesus never had to deal with Satan again. Yeah. (laughs) No, demons may well come back. They're wily, they're manipulative, they're evil, they're cunning, they're persistent. Uh, Yeah, it may well be back. But the thing, once you've dealt with it, oh, I kind of have an idea of what to do. It will be back almost certainly. And it'll try to worm its way in. But if you're kind of watching for it, uh, you'll say, oh, yeah, there it is again. That voice that says that, you know, you would be happier dead or whatever. And then in building out that... uh kind of expertise you're also learning to discern between like well is this a demon could be let's evaluate yeah these are the methods yeah if it's if it's me and i look inside yeah that's me i i recognize that that's just i'm just a cynical person so that cynical voice is me uh but other case you look inside and you know that's i i know what i feel like but that's it's like the voice of god coming into my mind I've got all kinds of stuff going on in my head, but every now and then it's it's the voice of God speaking. Right. Uh, I need to test the spirits to be sure, but just like the voice of God can be a, a person that's not me, a voice of a demon can be a person that's not me. And it, what we're what we've been talking about almost entirely, or certainly the majority of this, has been about what what you would probably categorize as something like demonic influence or oppression. Right. Um, what's the theological difference or e- the biblical difference between oppression, influence, and possession? Possession mm-hmm. is the word that gets thrown around a yeah. lot in popular yeah. culture. I, I, whenever I'm doing this, I try as hard as possible to avoid the word possession mm-hmm. because it has such emotional weight to it. Oh, my God, I'm demon-possessed kind of stuff. And uh, y- you just can't. But the thing is, when I look in the 
uh, when I look in the dictionary, I throw three basic meanings of the word possess. It means ownership, it means domination, or it means influence. And we use the English term possessed with all three of those connotations. Same thing for demonic stuff. Can a Christian be owned by a demon? The answer is no. I'm a part of the kingdom of light. Can a Christian be influenced by a demon, tempted or accused? Absolutely. Uh, those aren't debatable. The debate is, can I be dominated by a demon? Like my pastor friend I was talking about earlier, who a demon spoke through his mouth. I know a lot of Christians say, that can't happen. A demon can't do that. And I say, well, show me too in the Bible that it can't happen. And it's not there in the Bible. I've seen it happen in the guy. And he, he, no doubt he was a Christian. And no doubt that thing speaking through his mouth was a demon. So <laughs> when you do, do you think that the the methods of addressing either situation, even though you, what you're trying to create is a, a wider paradigm so that we're not just going right to, you know, the the movie magic version of Possessed <laughs> by a Demon. Yeah. But, you know, you get this language, at least in a, a lot of our translations of the New Testament, that seems to favor that word over and over again. You know, they brought to him someone who was possessed by an impure spirit, and it's carried over into our pop culture understanding right. of the yep. word possessed. Yep. I actually most of the contemporary translation uses the term demonized right. rather than possessed. And for the very reason that possessed carries a, an emotional connotation that demonized doesn't. But in the cases that's happening in scripture, these are like the demoniac in Mark chapter 5 who with that just absolute horror story of his life there for those four verses. This is a person who's completely dominated by a demon. There's no indication that he is a believer in Jesus Christ. He may be completely owned by that demon. Uh, so we don't have enough data to know that. But what we do know is that there were like two thousand, at least 2,000 demons in that poor guy. Uh, that's a horrendous thing. And But by the power of Jesus, he's released. Uh, so theologically, I come back. So sometimes people use the language... Demon-possessed means completely controlled by. Uh, Demon-obsessed means that you're just totally into demons, but you can do that as a believer. And demon-oppressed means that a demon's attacking you, but you can stand against it. And those are not biblical terms, but they may be helpful. So the, and this is maybe just for my pop culture curiosity, the idea of someone being... Um, as you say, like dominated by a demon, where they've become little more than like a physical puppet that a demon is in some sense operating, maybe 100% of the time or at least a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have the biblical data to say like, oh, that happens here and not there per se, but it does seem like there's at least hints of that kind of thing yeah. might take <coughs> place. Yeah. The, the picture that I look at uh, other than Jesus, who's attacked by a demon, and there's no sin in his life that leads to him being attacked. So just because I'm being attacked by a demon has nothing to do necessarily with sin in my life, though he'll take advantage of those things. Uh, I look at Second Timothy chapter 2, and it's talking there about praying for people, meeting with kindness, because Satan has taken them captive to do his will. I think in that context, the end of Second Timothy 2, that that's actually talking about a, a demonic or satanic kind of taking somebody captive uh, so that their will is dominated by a demon 
uh, Satan has a, doesn't have that authority to do that. But if I start believing his lies or listening to his leading, his temptation, I can, just like I can give my life away to another human, I could give my life away to a demonic presence, I think. So on that note, someone did ask um, about the level of access that the demonic kingdom has to our minds or, or even to our, like, sen- you know, our sensation, our thinking and feeling. Um, and they likened the, you know, the, um, the paradigm to the kind of access that God has to our minds in that there seems to be cases where God uninvited will show up and speak. Uh, <laughs> and then uh-huh. there, there are other cases when we actually sit, set aside time and say, I want to know about this. Please tell me about yep. this. And God shows up and he speaks with specificity. And they're wondering, is, the, is it comparable? Is there like a level of access that um, demons have to just our thinking and that without us w- wanting it or asking, they can just show up and ask questions or we could specifically you know, entertain conversations with demons. It seems like that's something that some people choose to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. I, I, I'm just agreeing with what you said. I mean, you summarize it well, Josh. I, I don't think Satan and demons are the same level. I think God has access to us with a power and such that Satan never has in the life of a believer. But it's interesting that in, in Acts chapter 5, you've got, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, and they buy into the lie we can get uh, privilege and, and recognition in our community by giving money away, but they lie and keep some of themselves. And Peter says to Ananias, why have you, why has Satan filled your heart? Mm. It's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit's filling. Uh, there are a couple different words for filling, but that very word is used the Holy Spirit filling us as well as the demonic. So it's an influence and authority that we give to somebody uh, demons don't have that authority in our life, but if we give it to them, in effect, we do. Do you think that there's like a almost in the same sense, that same comparable sense that the more time you spend um, entertaining the voice of the Holy Spirit, nurturing conversation with the Holy Spirit, that even though you may not be some you know uh, wacky occultist who's purposefully trying to dialogue with demons, the more you allow access, the more you entertain that voice that says, you're a pig, the more you entertain that, you know, uh, self-destructive, those patterns of thinking, the easier it is to hear them, the easier it is to, like, give them a platform, so to speak. Absolutely. That's why the Philippians 4 says, whatever is good, true, noble, pure, focus your mind on those things. You know, fill your mind with the truth of Jesus. And that's why we get the commands and the warnings, don't go to the soothsayers and the shamans and such. Uh, and I, I think that's really serious kind of thing. And that's why I spend basically no time or as little time as possible dealing with demonic things. I don't need to know what demons do. I run across it in the pastoral side of my life, but I don't study demons. I study Jesus. Nice. That's probably better for your profession. Yeah. I, it's better <laughs> for a lot of things, including the way I sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> Um, somebody asked, and I thought this was an interesting way of putting it. They said, how does the devil have a stepladder into our soul if the Holy Spirit lives in us? And I think that might have been a <coughs> phrase that I threw around um, 
as a kind of sermon illustration talking about the the things that you the conversations you have the company you keep the things that you entertain can provide for the dark kingdom a kind of step ladder into Absolutely. your thinking and Absolutely. and what they're wondering is like aren't we indwelled by the holy spirit how can they get there at all i the question of the analogy between the temple in the old testament and a believer we're, we are called temple of spirit individually and corporately in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, for example, or 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, it's, it is that. It, so if I take for the moment that analogy works, and I go back in the Old Testament, we find that the sinful Israelite people are regularly bringing demonic stuff into the temple. So in the reforms of Hezekiah and Josiah, in both cases, they cart all kinds of things out of the temple. In Deuteronomy 32, 32 and following, uh, it talks about people who are bringing demonic things into the temple in order to defile it and to insult God, who's in the temple at the same time. So if that analogy works, you can have demonic stuff in my body, uh, even though it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Others say, no, 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 uh, demonic spirit and Holy Spirit cannot occupy the same place at the same time. All I say is just show me one place in Scripture it actually says that. And they usually take me to 2 Corinthians 6, and it says what fellowship has light and darkness. But the point there is it's a command, do not be unequally yoked, because what fellowship is there between light and dark? It doesn't say you can't do it, it's saying you shouldn't do it. Right, which presupposes that you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. We can certainly be in close connection with unbelieving people. You could even be married to an unbeliever. And the thing is, it's not going to work if you've got a faithful Christian and a faithful anti-Christian. You can't have a deep harmony of a marriage or other kinds of partnerships. So would you even liken the story of the temptation of Jesus, though it's, you know, like imbued with all kinds of... Um, profound resonance for the biblical yes. story and all that, but the it, even so, you have this interesting little anecdote about Jesus being tempted by the devil. Yeah, and it seems I always just think like, well, I don't know if Satan can tempt Jesus. <laughs> it seems very likely that we might also be vulnerable in some yeah. sense. Yeah, and that's why the warnings about temptation and such. And of course, Satan is the uh, devil is the tempter. That's who he is. Uh, Satan is the accuser. That's the job description. Right. Somebody asked, uh, is it ever wise for a Jesus follower to back down when confronting spiritual evil, like when confronting a demonic stronghold in someone's life? To back down? To back down, yeah. And I think that they might have mentioned the fact that this in someone else's life on purpose. Like, what, what rel- what's the relationship dynamic if you're... Right. Someone, you live in community, some sense of community with another person, and you've begun to suspect, like, man, I wonder if this might be a little bit more, maybe even with nuance and with, you know, care, and you're thinking, this could be demonic stuff. Um, What level of participation is necessary? Or, like, is there a point when you have to say, well, there's not a whole lot more I can do? Absolutely. Uh, At least in my philosophy of doing things, one of my first things I always try to find out to the person who I think has a demonic influence or they think they have a demonic influence is, do you want to be rid of it? I used to just assume nobody would want a demon around. In fact, demon gives you thrills and power and knowledge. There are advantages to having a demonic friend. Uh, so now I'm 
I ask, sometimes subtly, more often just openly, do you want to be rid of that thing? <coughs> in because there are both advantages and disadvantages to demonic. And what I find with a fair number of people, they want the power, they want the thrills, they want the knowledge, they just don't want the demon to hurt them. So what they want me to do is make the demon stop hurting them. That I can't do. It's like hanging out with a drug dealer. I get some free samples, but I also get addicted to drugs in the process. You can't have, you get the whole package. So when somebody comes along and is like, um, I see all this in someone else. I see right. someone who is what seems to me, you know, I can't say for sure, but it really seems like this could be demonic and there that that person is that you know like well yeah i want help this is this is hard this, i'm struggling with this but then when they try to cross that bridge and like what if we did this what if we asked jesus what if we confronted the possibility of demonic oppression they're like oh, I don't, you know i'm not interested mm -hmm. and all that at what role the at, at what point does someone even like within like the the body you know the church community say okay well i mean you know i can't yeah. i can't make you do anything right the thing I do there, instead of trying to confront the demons, I try to get them into Jesus, discover who they are in Christ, their identity as a son of the Lord Most High, their identity of a warrior princess in the kingdom of God or something like that, whoever resonates with them, and begin on that side. Because the more they get into Jesus, the more they're going to say, oh, that demon, maybe I don't want him after all. But there's a reality that I can only go so far with somebody who doesn't want to be free. Same thing with people involved in sinful behavior. I see it. I see how it's hurting it. Maybe they're aware of how they're hurting it, but they don't want to quit because I, I like that girl. I like what happens. I like that guy in my life because I'm with him. X happens. I can't make them stop it, and even though they may know it's destructive in their life. So That's a good analogy. Yeah, that is good. So say you have the permission from the person to um, you know deal with this demonic influence. Um, what if you hit a roadblock and it doesn't seem like the demon's leaving or or something else? Like, what do you do if it's, if you know, for lack of a better term, it's just not working? <laughs> I Read the Bible, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Read the Bible, Cameron. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, uh, there are various reasons. I think in Mark chapter 9, when the disciples can't cast the demon out of the demonized boy, uh, there's a certain confidence and a certain competence to know how to deal with demonic things. Uh, and I find people, when they just, I don't know if this is going to work, they don't have the confidence to look at the demon and say, get away from me in Jesus' name. And if you're coming in, oh, I'll just try it and see how it happen, the demon will just be like a two-year-old. No! Mm. And if you don't have the confidence that I have that authority, the demon will just tell you no. And if, if you don't have, well, I guess that didn't work, uh, it, it's a lack of confidence in the authority you actually have. So I talk about moms and two-year-olds. Who has the authority? Well, ideally, the <laughs> mom has the authority. <laughs> in reality, the mom has the authority. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, the mom or dad doesn't have the confidence or the competence to use the authority that is rightfully belongs to the parent. Same thing with demonic things. Uh, so that's why I think there's a, uh, it doesn't work, is we just don't know what the connection is. Because with friends, you know, friends have connection in my life, and until I break that connection, it's hard to break the friendship. Same thing with a demon.
Hmm. That's really helpful. What about like, uh, could there be some sort of unconfessed sin? I, I I know that's a popular one where it's like it's not working. They must have more unconfessed sin that nope. Demons. Uh, Jesus proves very clearly you don't have to have any sin in your life to have a demon come after you. Hmm. And I don't think that although demons will take advantage of sin to be sure. I don't think that unconfessed sin gives a demon a right to be present, though many teachers say that in so many terms. I think what will happen, I think of a college kid I worked with a while back. His dad was a student of mine, and so he ended up with the, kid, the boy coming in and talking to me, and I taught him the same sort of stuff I've been talking about here. He went back, and when the demon showed up there in his room at the, at the uh, dorm that he was in, uh, and he told it to go away, the demon just laughed at him because at the same time he was entertaining all kinds of sinful stuff in his life and the kid wasn't really serious about following Jesus. And in that case, because he was knowingly entertaining a bunch of sinful stuff, the demon just pointed at that sin and just laughed at him. And he did not have the spiritual authority to do what he really had the literal authority to do because he was so compromised in his life. It scared him, and he went back and started doing some serious work about the sin in his life, just the open sin, and uh, that broke the connection with the demon. I don't think the sin gave it authority to be there, but the demon was taking advantage of the knowing sin that was in his life. I think that actually happens. Yeah, that's helpful. So it's less to do with like a quantifiable, unless you confess... Right. Everything within a 30-day period, then yep. you're vulnerable, and more to do with like a, a weakened spiritual exactly. state, a state yep. of vulnerability. But the demon will tell you, well, because your grandpa did so-and-so, I have a right to be in your home, and you can't do anything until you deal with grandpa's sin or something like that. That's a pure D lie. But if I believe it, it becomes effective. Mm. Is that something you've actually run into where yeah. people, they feel like they're being made to deal with things out even outside of their person yeah. yeah grandpa did i mean it's something i heard frequently grandpa was a mason and through his masonic connection this demon came into the bloodline and there's nothing i can do about it until i go back and clean up what grandpa did way back when that's a pure d lie but if i believe it it gives the demon it'll take advantage of the lie that's so that's so fascinating and so clever uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. demons are wily and cunning, and they'll take advantage of anything. And that's why demonic stuff, in some ways, is worse than flesh stuff, because you're dealing with a wily, cunning, personal being that's out to destroy Jesus and his influence in my life. And I've, you know, noticed I have s so few experiences of anything like, uh, I certainly like secondhand oppression stories where people are like, oh, this happened, this is something I'm dealing with mentally and spiritually, and you know, we'll talk through it and pray for it. But in the one or two instances where I feel like I was, you know, praying for someone and suddenly it became like a holy cow, like, uh, <laughs> you know, there were outward manifestations mm -hmm. of something that was truly bizarre. Um, I remember even being in the room with another pastor. And uh, this person suddenly looking up during prayer and saying to this other pastor, like, oh, he what does he think he's doing because he did these things and mentioned some things <laughs> that were personal to this person. Yeah. Now, I knew about them like they weren't like a secret, but they were uh, certainly insulting. Rude. You know, it was like a, it made yep. him feel embarrassed. Yeah. And I turned I spun around and looked at this friend of mine and was like, 
how the heck <laughs> yeah. did this person know? Because they were like, as far as I knew, someone who just happened to be in the Sunday gathering at the time and came for prayer because they were, you know, feeling so depressed. And and I remember thinking, and now his confidence is suddenly crippled because he's like, mm-hmm. he wasn't even thinking about that. Now he's feeling so embarrassed yeah. and like ashamed of himself. Yep. And I was like, what a strategy. Because now I feel like I'm praying for this person by myself, and that makes me feel hampered yep. and, yep. and not, no longer confident. Yep. Dramatic accusation that destroys the confidence of the person. Yeah, one of the things I do in situations is I, on on the whole, I try not to be the person who tells the demon to get out of somebody else's life. I try to help them have the spiritual confidence to do it themselves. Because the commands in Scripture are to the believer to stand firm and resist. And I don't, I think the best thing for me to do is bring them to the spiritual confidence in their position in Christ to where they can look at the demon and say, get out. In some cases, people are just not spiritually strong enough to do that, even though they want to. So I end up doing it for them the first time around, but then I have them come back and do it themselves. So I try not to be the deliverance person. I try to become the spiritual helper to the Christians where they can do their own spiritual work. Same thing in temptation of sin. If somebody's giving in to temptation of sin and I'm the one they're saying don't do it, later on when they're by themselves, they're helpless. Yeah. I don't want people to help be helpless before a demonic influence. Why, why do you think it is that um, <coughs> the methods of dealing with demonization, certainly, you know, the what, we know about from popular culture the exorcism rites mm-hmm. of Roman Catholicism yep. uh, became so formulaic, so elaborate in design. There's certainly a case for, you know, theatricality and elaborate <laughs> uh, exorcisms. Yep. Even in the first century, peers of, of Je- you know, the, the what seems to be noteworthy about Jesus' methodology is that it was so minimal and so, mm-hmm. like, get out. And it's like, what? Where's the bowl of water and the flaming papers? And yeah. you know, so what? How how is it that it became this thing that we see in in movies or read about, where you know there's a there's a rite and there's a sacred book and someone's trained in this special thing, you know? Whereas what you're advocating for is, I'll help you this time, and you need to learn this. <laughs> yeah, uh, part of it is you see Jesus commanding demons in Scripture. Uh, so in you know, the demonized guy in Mark 5, Jesus is saying, get out. The demon is arguing with Jesus. Uh, so you do find that in Scripture. Uh, part of it is demons work through magical ritual. When I talk to people involved in occultic practices, almost without exception, they have long rituals to get the power of the demon. And so you study what happens on the dark side is through rituals and magic and incantations and names and all that kind of stuff. Well, now as a Christian, if I'm going to have demon power the demon, if I ask the demons what I do to get power over you, they'll tell you the dark side magic. And a lot of the uh, rituals that are used in Catholic and Protestant things are actually copied directly out of the domain of darkness, which I think is exactly the wrong thing to do. Interesting. So it's almost like a, a reverse a reversal of that same elaborate exactly. process. Yeah, I when I, I've talked to a number of people who have been fairly happy on the cultic side of the house, and when they tell me what they did to get that power in the demonic things, whether it's 
voodoo ritual type things or satanic rituals or something, the rituals they're using look a lot like what's happening in a lot of the deliverance ministries things. I need to bind it. I need to use a certain ritual out of a book. Uh, I need to have a holy object of some sort. I need to get its name. And, and that's all from the dark side. It's not scriptural at all. Wow. Hmm. So, Gary, this has all been massively helpful. Thanks so much. The Can we talk about the demons in your life, John? <laughs> <laughs> Cameron. Yeah. You do it for him, okay? Yeah. yeah. Just tell me to read the Bible. Yeah, just read it. <laughs> um, I did want to ask to end, uh, you know, you, you know, like you said, have spent a, a fair amount of time thinking through some of these ideas and talking about them with other people and trying them out on audiences and and yet, in the years that I've known you, you don't seem like a guy who's at all preoccupied with obsessively with demons, demons, it could be demons, no. demons behind every bush. <laughs> no. And that was kind of the baseline thing that we were arguing for in our series was yeah. we want a robust theological, biblical paradigm for the reality of spiritual beings, of the spiritual realm, and to mm -hmm. take it very mm -hmm. seriously without slipping into yeah. paranoia, suspicion, like constantly looking for yeah. the devil behind every bush. What advice do you have to maintain well, Luke that? Luke 10, Jesus sends the guys out on a mission. They come back, whoa, even the demons listen to us. And Jesus said, calm down. Don't, don't get excited about that. Get excited your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Get excited about the right things. Uh, demons are just the trash. You know, take it out, but don't spend your life wondering about the trash. Get in the trash can and get rid of it. But then come back and enjoy the good food. And that's that analogy works for me. I want to enjoy the good food of Jesus, not worry about the trash or demons, or be excited that I can take the trash out and actually put it in the trash can and it goes away. Uh, it's just trash. So that's a big thing for me. Uh, but sometimes the demons pop up and you got to deal with them. So I think you need the tools to deal with them. But man, let's wonder in the beauty of Jesus. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us and find more teachings and resources at vancity.church, or you can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.